Um, so I think that's the greater peril, is the loss of confidence in universities. Universities ought to be a place where deeper, more transcendent reflection happens around truth. And when universities get dragged into kind of tribal contests <laughs> and, and the tribal wars, um, they, people lose confidence in those institutions. Welcome to Act in Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The Reverend John Arthur Nunez, Ph.D., is a Lutheran pastor and senior fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. This week, he's joined by Dan Huger, librarian and a research associate here at Acton, to discuss the current challenges in higher education. How can students be challenged to enter into the world of new ideas in an era when many students and administrators seem more concerned with affirming student identities and experience? What are the current challenges to academic freedom in the face of increasing pressure to censor ideas? How can campus leaders promote an environment of free inquiry? What bureaucratic obstacles exist to building student resilience? In addition, Reverend Nunes considers the promise of creative disruption in the educational status quo by new institutions of higher learning, particularly within the humanities. How does a robust education in the humanities prepare a student not only for a future world of work, but all of life? The conversation concludes with an illuminating discussion of the religious dimensions of current conflicts in higher education and how trust can be restored in damaged institutions. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate for the Acton Institute. I am joined today by the Reverend John Nunez. He's a Lutheran pastor and senior fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. He has served as the president for Concordia College, New York, is a president and CEO of Lutheran World Relief, and is a professor at Valparaiso University. Recent books John has written include, with Alberto Garcia, Wittenberg Meets the World and Meant for More, In, With, and Under the Ordinary. Today, we're going to be talking about higher education, some of the challenges there today, but I want to begin with you, Reverend Nunez, and you have had a long and variegated career touching on many aspects of the life of the church in the world, in service to neighbor, and in gospel ministry, and then in higher education. How is it that you came to where you are today? And could you share a little bit of your story with our audience? Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. It's great to be with you today and great to um, celebrate um, the role of Acton Institute in the life of John Arthur Nunes. Uh, so about three decades ago, I guess Acton's 30 years old. Is that yes. yeah, this yep. is the anniversary? So right around the time when Acton was being born, I was starting in ministry in Detroit. 
And we were really focused on the urban setting and what we could do to enhance and augment human flourishing, especially socioeconomically in terms of job opportunities and uh, just basic kind of uh, subsistence in some cases, basic education, basic you know, food, shelter, clothing, uh, and, and police protection uh, in, in urban communities. We, were, we really struggled to get the kind of governmental entities to be responsive. And I'm so thankful that Acton helped me to organize my thinking uh, about why that was the case and what we could do in terms of just kind of local um, subsidiarity, I think was a word I learned then, yeah. uh, how, how local um, entities could um, were best positioned to solve problems in their community. Um, so I'm appreciative uh, of Acton for that. I went on to become president and CEO of Lutheran World Relief, and there Acton helped me to understand the the, the perils and the stranglehold, <laughs> candidly, of yeah. government funding. And at LWR, we reduced substantially government funding to under 10%, um, and we increased the bottom line from $35 million to $49 million in revenue because we discovered somehow that U.S. Lutherans uh, liked to um, contribute to an organization where they felt that they were actually making a difference, not just a kind of pass-through for government money. So um, Acton, again, helped me to organize my thinking around there. So I'm very appreciative uh, of Acton, Dan. Yeah, no, thank you. And this last part, most recent part of your career in higher education, what are some of the challenges you see there? What are, what are you thinking through now as you're entering this new phase? So higher ed is a, you know, is a really, it's an embattled and embittered um, environment um, where ideological battles are waged and students are often not equipped with what they need to engage in civic, civil discourse, or I should say it the other way around, civil, civic discourse. Um, students uh, really struggle, um, even with re- well-reasoned, you know, rigorous arguments that are disentangled from their experiential epistemologies. And by that, I mean, we have to help students to understand that uh, just because I feel a certain way or just because my identity is a certain thing or a certain category, that does not, uh, app- that does not equate uh, my knowledge of a specific area. So, for example, to break it down even more, one, one step further. So, you know, we, we have conversations on college campuses now where, you know, we have students who feel that, oh, well, in the first place, they've students in classrooms who say things like, I, this feels true to me. Um, that that that's a that's a that's a false construct, you know. Uh, there 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 needs to be kind of research um, driven, rigorous, um, data driven understandings of what constitutes knowledge. Um, so there is an epistemological problem on on, on campuses, and oftentimes faculty um, and outside influences drive that. So what you have is you have students coming from all sorts of backgrounds and all kinds of contexts coming to university. And part of the task of what we've, what we've traditionally set out the university to be is to introduce students to new experiences, new perspectives. But you're seeing a resistance to that, a, you know, that they, they come in with certain commitments, certain identities, and they're closed off to new arguments, to new experiences. Um, what sort of what sort of day to day challenges does that does that pose 
in teaching, um, you mentioned that you've got some faculty that are that are very sympathetic with merely affirming student experience as they've come into the university. How do you start to break that down? How do you start to get people to open up to new experiences? And how do you encourage faculty to adopt those attitudes of sort of free inquiry as well? Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Dan. Um, most people go to college coming from high school environments that are relatively homogenous. And then they get to a, an institution of higher education, and it's, it's probably the most diverse a sort of environment they've ever been in. Um, but um, we don't do well in higher education, I, d I believe, in terms of enhancing viewpoint diversity. So students will come in and nearly 70% of students favor reporting professors if the professor says something that the student finds offensive. Yeah. So um, speaker in disinvitations. In, in 2019, there were 40 speakers who were disinvited from uh, opportunities to speak on college campuses because, not because of the sort of intellectual credibility of what they were saying or the academic credibility of what they were saying, but because they had a viewpoint that was at odds with um, probably a, a minority, but a loud minority of people on college campuses. Yeah, so this has a chilling effect. This has, this isn't merely a problem for individual students. This then filters into a cultural problem for the university itself. Because even if it is a small minority of students, they're very vocal and professors start to second guess themselves Folks in administration start to second-guess themselves about invitations that they might send out. Send out. Um, and you have, you have this constrained debate um, that sort of tends to homogenize educational experience in general and what is sort of allowed to be said in particular universities. Now, when you have those sorts of challenges, where can the change come? Um, does it come from the majority of students who maybe wouldn't have these objections and would like to hear varying perspectives? Does it come from faculty pushing back? What is the role of administrators in dealing with this problem? Um, is it, you know, does it have to come from the top? Is it best something that's addressed from below? Um, what if, have you seen some effective, more effective and less effective strategies in dealing with this problem? So that's a very good point, Dan. The majority of faculty, staff, and students admit to self-editing um, or self-censoring um, what they say for fear of retaliation or retribution. Um, I think what needs to happen on campuses is especially campus leaders. And by that, so as a former president, I'll speak from that perch, yeah. okay? Uh, college presidents need to spend down some of their capital. Okay? And it's easy for me to say this because I'm a former college president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> college presidents need to spend down their capital for the sake of protecting, as you, as you term it, freedom of inquiry. Yeah. 
because there's been an entire degradation of freedom of inquiry. And college presidents working with boards of regents or boards of trustees need to, I think, reset policies on college campuses. Many universities now have what, what are called bias response teams. Now, everyone's, no one is in favor, by the way. Let's just be yeah, really clear. No. no one's in favor of uh, using language in such a way that it defames or degrades anyone. Okay, so that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about kind of outright intentional uses of languages that kind of target people, okay, other yeah. human beings. E even though that's happening. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, can I give you an example, for example? Yeah, so Carol Hooven teaches at um, Harvard University. She's a evolutionary biologist. So she is trained in chemistry and biology. She dared to suggest in a recent book that um, there were biological differences that were you know, chemically traceable <laughs> yeah. between men and women. And many of those are driven by testosterone. Yeah. Okay. She was met with a firestorm of response for daring to suggest this difference. She was called transphobic. And uh, one um, person who's part of this like kind of bias response team uh, suggested that Carol, um, oh, by the way, this, this person identifies on Twitter. So I'm just reporting the facts. Okay. Yeah. This person identifies on Twitter as a um, bluish feminist mermaid. Now, bluish is not the color, okay. um, but bluish is a blended word. So she, I guess she's got a, a black parent and a um, Jewish parent, Okay, presumably a male and a female, but nonetheless, yeah. a black parent and a Jewish parent. And then so she's a blue. So BL is for black and then Jewish. Right? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's bluish fem, uh, feminist mermaid. And she called Carol's uh, Dr. Hooven's ideas. She called them dangerous, okay? Not that they were scientifically untenable, not that they were, uh, d you know, to be argued or debated or engaged in some kind of rigorous, reasoned dialogue about this, but the idea was ideologically dangerous. That's the kind of thing that happens on, on, on campuses. And these bias response teams allegedly advocate and support anyone who, you know, feels that they have experienced some kind of uh, slight of any sort. So building resilience in students is part of the responsibility um, of, of, of higher educators. Um, not only building, so intellectual toughness yeah. is part of what we ought to be about. So, I mean, so, so two things. One, yeah. so uh, administrators spending down some of their, uh, you know, authorial capital and, and growing some courage, uh, you know, to make a difference on the, on the one hand. And then students, you know, uh, working with students so that they can um, uh, deal more uh, responsibly. Because, you know, if they're having a tough time on campus, they're going to have an even tougher time in the world. Yeah. For which we're supposed to be preparing them. So right now, there's, there's an institutional structure with, in this case, a bias response team, but many of these, many of these other um, institutional structures that essentially exist to promote these sort of grievances, to facilitate these sort of grievances from students. Is there a place for something like a resiliency response team? <laughs> something that... You know, if students, particularly, they're coming from these backgrounds yeah. and they feel very threatened, rightly or wrongly, is there a place? Is this is this something that that faculty should take the point on in dialoguing with students 
trying to come to an understanding that, you know, this is the university, this is a different social context, you're going to encounter people that are different from yourself, that's exactly that believe right. different that's things. That's exactly right, Dan. Yeah. So for example, um, first year experience, the or sort of orientation yeah. that students, uh, incoming students um, uh, go through, mm-hmm. that ought to include kind of setting the ground rules for what they can expect to happen on a college campus. Only one in four students report being um, very comfortable discussing a controversial political topic with their classmates. Where are students supposed to learn? Where are humans supposed to learn how to engage in difficult conversations across difference, if not on a college campus? And so... To your point, yes, uh, we should build into – and I think it's student affairs teams that we should should build in this um, idea, this notion of – so I'm thinking, you know, the historically black colleges and universities, uh, Morehouse and those other schools, we used to prepare students for a life that was often unjust, like in this broken and or fallen world. Absolutely. Uh, you will face it. But these students were not waiting for doors to open. They were creating <laughs> new pathways and, and breaking down doors and making things happen. And I think to kind of build that sort of resilience into the lives of our students is part of our calling and responsibility. You know, as, as you were explaining some of the mechanics of how this operates, I remembered an instance and. In, you know, I'm 38 years old now. <laughs> um, I went to the university through the university at a very different time, but I even remember taking an education course at a at a Christian college, and we were discussing how to deal with students with issues of gender and sexuality. And there was an interesting pedagogical device introduced into the discussion, which were these clickers, and you could do anonymous polling. So there was the discussion that happened prior to the introduction of the anonymous polling. And then you would think there was, there was a certain consensus that emerged in the, in, the, in the discussion. And then the instructor said, all right, we've had this discussion. I would ask you to, you know, you know what do you think, do you agree or disagree with this consensus that we've come to in this open discussion? And the overwhelming result of the poll by two thirds was that they disagreed with the consensus. And then the professor took it upon himself to say, okay, some of you are uncomfortable here talking about what you think. Let's talk through these arguments and we could anonymize this. You don't have to come forward, but we need to have this discussion because you will encounter this in your professional life. That's right. And we need to talk through this. And part of this involves um, talking through your commitments and how you'll approach it. And through this discussion, hopefully everyone That's right. can come to a more robust understanding. And I was, I was, I was shocked yeah. and amazed by That's it. That's right. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was very revealing. So social media, of course, drives a lot of this. Yeah. Right? The instantaneous uh, kind of response where there's not much deliberation. I mean, what is a free society? It's, it's you know, free people <laughs> deliberating the questions of how we ought to order our lives together. Um, and so if we don't model for students how to disagree in a civil manner um, that's not driven by the kind of 
fired frenzy that is social media. So, for example, um, we had an issue on Concordia's campus where students were asking about kneeling at sporting events, whether or not they could kneel. And so Mm -hmm. I went to a um, a meeting of the... uh, of student athletes. So I'm standing before a wall of 200 student athletes. And it was the second question that they asked, you know, can we kneel? Well, of course, this is the United States of America. You can, you can kneel. There's the, the first amendment means something. Okay. Yeah. You can, you can freely express. And so, but I asked them, but let's think about this a little bit. What, what do you want to accomplish by kneeling? Well, we want to draw attention to questions of racial justice. That's a, that's, that's a good thing to do to draw attention to questions of race, racial Injustice. So do you think kneeling accomplishes that? Well, we think it does. Well, how about we try another strategy? Let's invite uh, a panel of speakers on, t- on the topic of kneeling. Let's invite people from Black Lives Matter. Let's invite people from uh, the military, people whose family members have died <laughs> in defense of the, the nation and for the flag, so to speak. Let's invite law enforcement. Let's, let's, let's get all of these people on a panel discussion and let us model what it means to have a difficult dialogue. We called it Dialogues on the Quad. And we had a series of these kinds of conversations. So I think it's, it's, it's you know, I think it's part of the role of institutions of higher education is modeling how this actually occurs on a college campus. You can flip a coin and one person take one side of the argument and the other person take the other side of the argument and just show how arguments don't need to devolve into degradation and ad hominem attacks. So there is a lot of institutional inertia in the dif- dysfunction we find today, either from people who are, who are sort of ideologically committed to this project or people who just, you know, they want to go along to get along. And, you know, risking that capital is a risk as an administrator, as a leader, um, and it's difficult. Now, one, one solution that's been proposed to this is starting new institutions where these sorts of the prevailing culture in university life is rejected and these sort of clear grounds for free inquiry, free expression are supported and explicit from the outset. So you've got buy-in at every level of the institution. Um, what, are the, what are the promises of projects like that? And what are like some of the big challenges? Yeah, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we can break this yeah, up. <laughs> yeah, we, we will. Uh, so I think the sort of strategy that we ought to support would be a both and strategy. So there are people working, you know, fearlessly and faithfully within um, institutions of higher education um, <clears throat> to bring change from within. And I think, you know, as a, as 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 uh, as a Christian person and as a person who has enjoyed the fruits and benefits of uh, Western civilization, <laughs> mm-hmm. we believe that. Um, we believe in redemption. We yeah. believe in the redemption of institutions, and we believe that um, we can make a difference. Uh, so I applaud people who are working, you know, within the system to change the system. It's typically the way I've worked my entire career. However, I think it's also important to um, consider 
the disruptive, the kind of creative disruption that can occur when new institutions are created that will actually put pressure uh, on, you know, the kind of the the status quo, as it were. Yeah. And um, uh, and and are started without a kind of precedent or a legacy uh, to which they are uh, bound. so yes, I, I would I would be in favor of new institutions. Yeah. I am so much in favor of new institutions uh, that I'm working with um, Pano Canelos, who is the new president uh, at the University of Austin uh, in in Texas. We have interviewed him on this very program before. It was it was it was a, an exciting interview, and I'd, I'd invite listeners to check that out. Outstanding, yeah. Yeah, I worked with I worked with Pano at Valparaiso University. He was the dean of Christ College, there, um, the Honors College, really dedicated to the humanities, mm-hmm. uh, and then went on to become president, as you know, at St. John's College yes. in um, in uh, in Maryland. Uh, and so the humanities are part of you know the of what's at stake here. Mm-hmm. These uh, I, I call the humanities the human ties <laughs> uh, that humanize us. Yeah, um, and I had the benefit of that sort of education. Yeah, so four yeah. years of you know Latin, uh, four years of French, Greek, Hebrew, lots of philosophy, uh, and I want students to have the benefit of that sort of education again, uh, and that's part of what the University of Austin is committed to. That's exciting. There are some other examples of universe of, of smaller of, of colleges. I think you know my my alma mater, Hillsdale College, is one of these. And this was this was one of those examples of you know in the nineteen seventies there was a very visible you know there were phases to the college's existence. You know, it was founded as a free will Baptist college. It was a hotbed of American abolitionism. It had the greatest volunteer rate for the Union Army of any college uh, in the United States outside of the Union Army. There were Mm. some schools in the South that had a higher percentage of enlistees in the Confederate Army. But um, and it had that very strong religious tradition for a very long time, but drifted away from that and became just sort of a generic liberal arts college and then became the sort of place that, you know, if your kid couldn't get in somewhere else and you, and you were willing to write a check, <laughs> um, this is where they could go. And there was, there's, a, there's a larger story about how that changed, but it involved a lot of that expense of capital um, to transform. And it was a very explicit transformation that happened. Um, so that's one way to reinvent an institution. Another way is on the margins to, you know, set up um, some guardrails. Uh, University of Chicago is an example of this where the president has expended some capital in defense of sort of free inquiry, uh, free expression. Yeah, Bob Zimmer's been amazing, yeah. uh, the work that he has done there. Um, and I like the way they limit their institutional speech, so what they comment on publicly, they limit it to only those matters that pertain directly to the mission of the institution. Mm -hmm. That's kind of explicit in their statement. So I like the rule of um, Richard John Newhouse. When it's it's not necessary to speak, it's probably 
necessary not to speak. <laughs> That's a very helpful rule. Um, you mentioned the humanities is the center of this. And there's, I think, tremendous opportunity here because there's a tremendous amount of talent in the humanities, PhDs. We're facing a crisis in higher education. And a lot of great teachers are being let go because universities are struggling. Even more are struggling to find work because of the crisis in the universities. And this is particularly acute in the humanities. And I think this is a great opportunity for new institutions to absorb great people with great talent to do something new. This gets harder with the hard sciences. But, but you're right about the marketplace. Um, there's, there's a, there's, I think there's a, there's a real openness um, among um, employers, potentially, uh, for candidates who are able to communicate, like use the English language, for example, yeah. <laughs> with a subject and a predicate uh, that correlates to a larger stream of thought. Uh, and I think there's a, uh, I, you know, so so people, so I'm on the plane the other day, I'm yeah. sitting on the plane and talking to a guy who's a hedge fund manager. And I ask, he, so he owns 27 companies. And I ask him, you know, what are the challenges that he has in these companies? He says, in the first place, I'm having a difficult time finding people who want to work. Yeah. Okay, labor force uh, issues. In the second place, those, I'm having a difficult time with mental health issues. So he sees people coming through COVID and just not dealing with life well, managing life well. But the third one caught my attention. He said, I, I, I have a difficult time finding employees who are competent and have a capacity for disagreement in the workplace. Like how do we actually navigate and negotiate disagreement? I think the humanities set us up for that because the humanities teach us um, what does it mean to be a human person? Um, what, what does it mean to be empathetic towards others? What does it mean to work and collaborate uh, with others for the sake of kind of a common project or a common good. The humanities, I think, draw us out, out of ourselves into something that is larger, into a project that is larger uh, than we ourselves are. The humanities help us to know that, uh, that none of us uh, has, that all of us have the capacity to become something more, and none of us is really the person that we ought to be. So I, it, it, there's a kind of humility that, occurs uh, when you kind of are, um, when you learn about the kind of human project. A lot of people are very interested in that topic of character education. And I think they often overlook that this is a lot of what that tradition in the liberal arts was. It wasn't explicit and direct in terms of, okay, we're teaching you scenarios of conflict and ways to resolve them. But we're introducing you to a tradition in which there is a lively debate and conversation throughout and there's conflict and there's reconciliation and these are models you know these are these are teaching you to be fully human so one of the things i i um have done through my career throughout my career is um no matter what sort of administrative position I was in, I would try to stay connected both to a local parish as a parish pastor and stay also connected in the classroom. So I taught regularly. And one of the courses I 
um, I, I liked to teach would include kind of uh, intellectual dispositions. And I would have this formula that I would try to give students something that they can carry with them in life. And it was the chic formula. So C-H-I-C. So it's an acronym. Uh, so C is for you know intellectual curiosity just to get started. So in other words, and which is more than just, by the way, surfing the internet. Yeah. Um, it's actually, you know, digging deep. It's interrogating problems and questions. It's grabbing a an idea by the lapels and demanding of it some kind of explanation of why it exists as an idea. It's demanding of it kind of uh, its proof. Um, so, it was, so C is for um, curiosity. H is for intellectual humility. So I would have the students actually tap themselves on the chest six times. So you can do that with me now, Dan. Absolutely. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now repeat after me. I don't know everything. <laughs> I don't know everything. And it's just really good for students to who are 18 and omniscient uh, to be reminded that a little learning is a dangerous thing. Yeah. You know, drink deeply or touch not the fiery in spring. <laughs> for shallow drafts intoxicate the brain and drinking largely sobers us again, said Alexander Pope. So there's something around this kind of uh, humility that, that we ought to be um, exuding and teaching um, and forming, I guess is the better term, forming. The I was for uh, intellectual integrity so that one's, to you talk, your point around character education, so that one's life is aligned with, um, with what one thinks and what one does, walking the walk and talking the talk and being the... And as a person of faith, that's really important. You know, David Brooks has done a lot in terms of this road to character and what does it mean to actually be a person of character. And then finally, intellectual courage. Uh, once one has, you know, gone through this kind of process, then she or he has the uh, courage of uh, his or her convictions to, you know, to stand up and represent well uh, in in a um, in a public setting. And often, you know, back to the point around what who can do what on college campuses. Yeah. Students can, you know, can you know be encouraged to use their courage to speak out for matters that matter. That's that's a wonderful, wonderful advice and a great formula. I'm going to be, I'm going to be touching myself six times. Uh, so actually, I did, I, you know, I did that. At, you know, I'm 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 on the um, bipartisan policy task force on free expression, and it it was chaired by. Um, the former governor of uh, Vermont, Republican Jim Douglas, and the other chair was the former um, governor of the state of Washington, Christine Gregoire. So, and she's a Democrat. So they had yeah. a Democrat and a Republican. So they were trying to model again that we can actually, you know, disagree without committing homicide. Yeah. Uh, and um, I told that story about tapping on the shoulder six times, and they said you need to come to the uh, you know the conference of governors and help them to understand that they don't know everything. But you know, a little humility really does go a long way. I think um, absolutely, and it's really lacking in a lot of both the identity politics on uh, the progressive identity politics uh, and identity the identitarian power movements of of the right. Yeah, I mean, and that's. That's one of the tragic things of the chilling of this speech and expression is we've talked somewhat about some of the some of the like institutional pathologies that cultivates, but it also cultivates in another segment of the population resentment. 
which can be equally poisonous and which can lead to a sort of radicalization and intransigence, a lack of charity um, and a pride. Um, where do you see, how do you see that danger unfolding? Is, is that something that you've encountered? Um, and, and, and how big of a danger do you think that is? Yeah, Matthew Rose, I don't remember the name of the book. I could probably Google it right quick. But Matthew Rose has written a really interesting book on this very topic. So it's, it's the kind of um, the ideas in the alternative right and how they have become uh, embedded but I, I, I agree, the, re, the kind of reactionary responses on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, yeah. are, um, are uh, deleterious to our flourishing as a society. And part of the reason that I think this has occurred, Dan, is because we have turned penultimate things into ultimate things. And so, you know... Politics is always a penultimate thing, and it's always a messy enterprise. Yeah. Okay, and democratic society is 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 not the end goal of human life. These are thinly constructed institutions, and so I think we. So candidly, I mean, my theological kind of appraisal would be, you know, first commandment violation. We are to fear, love, and trust God above all things. And when you invest in these kind of secondary things, whenever you turn secondary things into primary things, bad things happen. Absolutely. No, the, the small catechism is a great place. Exactly. You know, you know the book. That, understanding. <laughs> that was Luther's, that's exactly, that's Luther's explanation And it's right wonderful. There. What is it to have a God? Yeah. And, yeah. um, Oftentimes, these identities or these identitarian right. statements, are, right. are, this becomes the center. Well, even John McWhorter, who is avowedly uh, uh, an atheist yeah. or an agnostic at best, says that, um, you know, wokeism mm -hmm. is a kind of religion. And so we have these kind of religions. And, and it, for one's religion, one will do almost anything, you see, and that's... That's part of the problem. Well, one can become a martyr, right? For yeah. One's, for one's religion. Uh, but is there anything that in the kind of political sphere that's worth becoming a martyr for? I don't think so. There's a there's a, someone who teaches at um, uh, at Harvard named uh, Jim Hankins. You know him? Yeah. The name is familiar. Yeah. I'm just trying to look this up here. Just give me a second. He's yeah. got Hankins' Law of of the Conservation of Fanaticism, he calls it. Okay. And it goes something like this. I'll just kind of paraphrase it. He says, there's a certain segment of the population that is naturally inclined towards fanaticism. And if that, and that fanaticism is usually uh, directed towards some kind of religious fanaticism. But when religion is no longer the fanaticism, the something else that the fanaticism gets directed to is politics. So we have this kind of substitution to the first commandment, the substitution of uh, a, an, an ultimate end for some, a first thing yeah. or a first principle for something that is secondary. So this is important because this gets to the larger context of our social life together. And ideally the university should contribute to that in a positive way. Um, and what we're seeing is, you know, when we, we see these problems throughout society, do you see the university as 
something that is sort of the leading, one of the leading contributors to these problems? Um, and how can it be the solution again? How can it, how can it contribute to developing full yeah. human persons? Yes, right. That's, that's, that's a great um, point, Dan. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. The, I don't know. I, I, think, uh, I think irrelevance is the greater threat that the university is facing. Uh, in fact, I think there's a declining number of people who even see universities as, as contributory or consequential anymore in terms of what had been historically their role of creating citizens and creating leaders for society. Um, so I think that's the greater peril, um, is the, uni- the loss of confidence in universities, you know, when, when universities are sp- in, engaging in universities ought to be a place where deeper, more transcendent reflection happens around truth. And when universities get dragged into kind of tribal contests <laughs> and, and the tribal wars, um, they, people lose confidence in those institutions. There is a sort of large-scale decline in trust in many institutions. The university is, is an example, but it's not unique. But some of that, what I'm saying yeah. is that some of that's self-induced. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, th- and this, this happens in government. What, what do you see as the way, and maybe this can be larger than the university, the way to get trust is to be trustworthy. Yes. And how do we model that trustworthiness. We've talked a little bit about, you know, um, meaning what you say, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, in a world in which there are so little trust, how do we begin to rebuild that? Does it begin? I mean, it begins at all levels. It begins at institutions, at individuals. Do you see a common thread and how can, how can we cultivate that virtue of trustworthiness? This has been a wonderful, wide-ranging conversation, <laughs> Dan. <laughs> uh, so here we are on the waterfront. So yeah. let's just let's keep walking along the beach. Uh, so it's really interesting around trust because there is a risk of truth, right? Truth inheres riskiness. And, I, and I've failed, I, I'm sure, more times than I've succeeded at this, but I have really endeavored uh, to live by this kind of um, axiom, not really an axiom, but maybe a, 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 f- a formula around leadership, that um, the telling of truth, which is one of the most difficult um, <laughs> tasks that leaders face, especially in institutions that have challenges, uh, and especially in a society that is uh, p- punitive and in a cancel culture, that like we, the telling of truth is a really hard thing. Um, but I think leader, I think it, it really falls to leaders. I'm not a big Steve Covey fan, you know, seven yeah. highly effective have. But one and one point he makes that is right on the money is you can never move an institution or an organization or a relationship any relationship, faster than the speed of trust. So whether, you know, where, there is, where trust is dissipated. So it's up to leaders, I think, to tell the truth, to tell it 
all, or as much as you can tell, as much as your lawyers will let you tell, yeah, uh, or your <laughs> HR department, and to tell it yourself. So don't you don't delegate the telling of truth to other people. You you actually you know uh, you, you be an adult and tell it yourself, and to tell it early, so that you don't wait uh, for the telling of truth. So I, I think there's something there's something there around truth. The other thing that, though, about truth is that truth is not something that we experience. And this is, I was talking earlier about the dis, I'm trying to make this this narrative at least yeah. <laughs> linear. Yeah. But, you know, I was talking about the disentangling of experience from knowledge. Yes. Truth is not something that we experience. Truth is something that we encounter. And I think that's an important sort of distinction. distinction. Yeah. And the university can be a tremendous place for those discoveries, those encounters to be made. Reverend Nunez, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for sharing um, your wisdom and your perspective in the challenges of higher education and your own wonderful story of leadership in many capacities. Dan, thanks for the opportunity to think deeply about these, uh, these topics and to be in conversation with you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.